evening, guys. That's mine, yeah? I'm going to need that. You guys got anything left in the tank? Good. I told a buddy of mine when I was uh, speaking, and he said, oh, man. He said, uh, that's at a time when they've been rode hard, and they haven't been put away wet yet. So uh, it's a treat to be with you guys out here. This is a, a special, special place, and uh, it's just uh, it's just real good to be back here. So, men, uh, I wanted to talk tonight about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Uh, the fact is, many men throughout history have tried to or attempted to successfully, and I think more times than not, maybe unsuccessfully, answer that question. Through the ages, man has tried to marry Jesus to any number of causes, from the Crusades to slavery to all the isms like environmentalism, feminism, socialism, capitalism, nationalism, racism, now anti-racism, And on and on and on. From Jesus as a Democrat to Jesus as a Republican, from Jesus as a progressive to Jesus as a conservative, on both sides of any given issue, man has so often attempted to use Jesus to legitimize his cause or his belief system by wedding Jesus to it. Interestingly, most recently, there's a he gets us campaign. Are you guys familiar with that? A well many they got billboards in major markets and had a couple spots in the Super Bowl. The uh, one of the major news outlets describes the he gets us campaign like this. It says they portray the pivotal figure of Christianity as an immigrant, a refugee, a radical, an active an activist for women's rights and a bulwark against racial injustice and political corruption. The He Gets Us website features content about of-the-moment topics like artificial intelligence and social justice. Men, the temptation to make Jesus culturally relevant seems through the ages to be insatiable to man. I suggest to you that if we look at ourselves, if we step back and examine our own thinking, both past and present, that we may likely come to the conclusion that we too have awesome pops off, off, that we have often also possibly fallen victim to such behavior. And, and most times we attempt to marry Jesus to our system of thought, right? Not our adversaries. That makes sense, right? I want Jesus on my side. I want him to be behind me and my calls behind my line of thinking. When I was a kid, I had a bumper sticker uh, that was affixed to my bulletin board in my bedroom. And it says, we know Jesus is a Penn State fan. We know that. Why else would the sky be blue and white? So we may chuckle and snicker. Perhaps some of you guys from Ohio will roll your eyes. But in reality... That's the nature of man, I think, isn't it? 
to craft a Jesus that fits into my system of belief. A Jesus that cares about what I care about. A Jesus that is passionate about what I'm passionate about. A Jesus that counts the same things as important that I count as important. The problem, guys, is that most time what ultimately happens is that man is creating a Jesus that makes him comfortable. One that he can control, perhaps even manipulate. As you guys, it's easy to deduce, right? This is stupidity. You guys can hear me? Oh, there we go. I would suggest to you guys that it's more than that. It's dangerous as it's idolatry as we try to craft Jesus into an image that meets what I perceive my needs to be. Rather than discovering who it is that Jesus has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. So what I wanted to do as I prepared for our time together is approach the scriptures and put all assumptions and presuppositions aside and start with a blank slate of who was Jesus, right? Part of the reason I chose the title, I had some couple guys snicker at the title a little bit like, well, that's complex, right? Jesus. But it was by design because I didn't want, you know, there's so many things that we can do to add to that. And I just wanted us to let's try to try to start off with Jesus, not anything, not marvelous Jesus, not Jesus. Let's just start off with Jesus. Now, as you can imagine, guys, there is quite a bit of content on Jesus in the scriptures. So buckle up. We got three hours to get through it. But no, um, what I wanted to focus on were six characteristics or roles of Jesus. All right. So in our time together, I wanted to focus on Jesus as God, Jesus as creator, Jesus as ruler, Jesus as judge, Jesus as man, and Jesus as redeemer and Messiah. Understanding that no talk that I could give could fully do justice to our wonderful Jesus, right? So with that as a backdrop, guys, let's, um, let's open up with a word of prayer, huh? Uh, Father, we just thank you for the privilege that it is to gather together as men uh, here in this special place. And it is a special place, but it's special because of, uh, because of you, because of the commonality that we have with each other in Jesus. Lord, we just ask and invite you. Plead with you to um, send your spirit in amongst us tonight. It's the desire of our hearts that um, that you will be pleased, pleased, and above all that you would be glorified. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Man, if you can turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter one, and uh, we're going to read verses one through three and verse fourteen. My buddy Ray's agreed to do some reading for me, and uh, I'm going to have him read verses 1 through 3 and 14, and then I'm going to make a little bit of a modification, and we're going to go back through and read those verses. He's going to read those verses again. So, uh, Ray, when you're ready there, if you could read for us John chapter 1, we're going to go 1 through 3, 
and then verse 14. Testing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thank you. So, men, who is the Word, right? The Word is Jesus. We know that. It says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word. I've, I've found it. I've been blessed by doing this, and I just thought I wanted to do it for the group. I'm going to have Ray reread that, and in place of the Word, wherever that's used, he's going to reread it using the name of Jesus. So follow along with me as he reads. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Jesus, and apart from Jesus, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. And Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw Jesus' glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, a lot to grasp and talk about and ponder there, right, man? Um, two, two things just from the first verse alone that I want to make a note of first, it states that Jesus was always with God, right? In the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God. There was not a time that Jesus was not, he was not created at some later date. He always was, always is, and always will be. He's eternal. He didn't burst onto the scene at his birth in Bethlehem. He was not created. Jesus always was. Just as the passage tells us. Right? We can cross reference this truth, truth. With the creation account. In Genesis 1.26. Where the scriptures read. Then God said let us. Make man in our image. According to our likeness. He didn't say mine. He said us. Our and our. Right? And this is the Godhead. Right? This is. The Godhead, of course, who is Jesus is part of. He is, be, he is infinite that way and infinite that way. The second truth to note from that first verse is it says that Jesus was God. Period. And man, this shouldn't be glossed over. He is not inferior to God the Father. He's not a second-hand God or a lesser embodiment of God. He is, was, and always will be fully God. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9 tells us that, For in Him, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Not partial deity, not inferior deity, deity, but the fullness of deity dwells. This is our Jesus. Jesus our God. Our scriptures, time and time again, are abundantly clear that Jesus is God. 1 John 5.20 says regarding Jesus, this is the true God and eternal life. Jesus himself says in John 8.58, he starts out by saying, truly, truly. And I would suggest to you guys that when I hear that, when I see that, what I think Jesus is doing is drawing our attention, extra special attention to what he's about to say. Like, sit up on the edge of your chair, lean in, and make sure you're paying attention to what I say. 
And Jesus goes on and says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So Jesus not here. Jesus here not only draws attention to his infinite existence, infinite existence by saying, I existed before Abraham. I didn't just burst onto the scene here. But he also lays his direct claim to deity when he referenced himself as I am. Of course, he's referencing the Old Testament when God identified himself to the nation of Israel. Moses asked, well, who, who should I say sent me? And he says, I am. You tell him I am sent you. So Jesus here unequivocally communicates that he is sovereign. He is the great I am. The New Testament also opens up with the truth that Jesus is God. In Matthew one twenty three, the angel says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translates means God with us. Jesus, his, one of his names, Emmanuel, literally means God with us. Then Jesus is separate and distinct from the Father, but never to be confused with less than or inferior to. His deity is established and is clearly communicated throughout Scripture. Jesus always was God, was always in existence, period. Jesus says at the end of the Bible, in the last chapter of Revelation twenty-two thirteen, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So that's Jesus as God. Let's move on next to Jesus as creator. Yes, sir. There is a fee associated with questions. So I just know that I determine what the fee structure looks like after the questions asked. Just just put it on my tab. Mm-hmm. Um, can you list it like five or six verses pretty quickly there? Do you think yeah. you could just uh, cover those really quick so I can you write bet. them down? Thank you. That one's no charge. Uh, John eight fifty eight, First John five twenty. Matthew one twenty three. Before, yeah, <laughs> no, I cannot. First John five twenty, John eight fifty eight, Colossians one fifteen, Colossians two nine, Exodus three fourteen is a reference back to where the he says I am, and Matthew one twenty three. The last one, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, is Revelation 22.13. All right, Jesus as creator. Let's stay in the passage, guys, uh, the John chapter 1 passage. We learn not only from that passage that Jesus always was, that Jesus was always with God, and that Jesus was God. But we also see in verse 3 that Jesus was involved in creation verse 3 if you want to read with me it says all things came into being through him jesus and apart from him jesus nothing came into being that has come into being just sit back and ponder that guys not only was jesus at creation he was at the exact center of creation Colossians 1.16 expands on this and tells us that for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him 
and for him. Colossians 1.16. Guys, that verse is amazing. Not only was creation and all our world that is in it created by Jesus, but the verse tells us also that all in the heavens as well. Everything. Everything visible. Everything invisible. All kingdoms. All rulers. All authorities were not only created by him and through him, but also, and most importantly, the passage says, for him. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. Jesus is at the center of it all, the center of everything. Man, there is nothing that has been created, nothing that was not created by Jesus. Our universe, our Milky Way, our solar system, and our earth, all that is contained there within Jesus. The anatomy and intricacies of the human body down to the heart, the complexity of the eyeball, down to the cell and DNA level, protons, neutrons, Jesus. Gravity, science, mathematics, love, emotion, the soul, Jesus. All things were created through him and all things came into being through him and for him. Not only this, the scriptures go on to say that the whole of the created order is held together by Jesus. Colossians 3.17 says, Jesus, he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus upholds all things by the power of, by the word of his power. So that is a present and active statement, right? Right now, as we sit here, Jesus is actively holding all things together. He always has, always will, always will be. Jesus, the creator, is at the center of it all, guys. Isn't that awesome? Let's roll to Jesus as ruler, huh? Ray. Guys, turn with me in your Bible. Let's go to a Bible verse here. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. And once you hear the pages stop flipping, Ray, you can bang on it. Ephesians 1, chapter 20 to 23. Chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. Go for it, buddy. Which he... God the Father brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Man, Christ is above all rule and authority and power and dominion. The word above in that passage, the Greek word, has the specific meaning of being in a higher place or rank. He put all things in subjection under his feet, under, under the feet of Jesus. Going back to our Colossians verse, Colossians 1.17, it says that he, Jesus, is before all things. And that word before in the Greek has the meaning of above. 
And let's remember a verse earlier in Colossians 1.16. It said that for by him all things were created, the heavens, the earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Of course he's the ruler of all, right? It was created by him and for him. Of course he is the ruler of all. Colossians 2.10 says, In him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Seems to be a bit of a pattern here, huh? John 3.35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Not some things, not most things, all things, the totality. Jesus himself testifies of his position in Matthew 28, 18. He says, all authority has been given to me in the heavens and on the earth. All authority. Jesus says in Revelation 1, 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come. And then he finishes it with the Almighty. That word Almighty in Greek has the meaning of absolute and universally sovereign, omnipotent. This is our Jesus, guys, ruler of all, the Almighty. That's Jesus as ruler. Moving on, let's look at Jesus as judge. Man, I think that um, one of the aspects of Jesus that is so often glossed over, skipped, missed, or not just emphasized is Jesus as judge. I think we really do ourselves a, a great disservice in not paying attention to all that the scriptures speak about on this truth. And there, there is a lot. Jesus himself communicates time and time again about how he is the righteous judge. John 5.27, he says, And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Luke 5.22 Jesus says, for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. Revelation 19, speaking of Jesus, reads, and I saw heaven opened up and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Man, this, go ahead. That was Revelation 19:11. This next one, I think, is especially important. Turn with me, if you, if you would, to Matthew 3.12. In the New Testament, I'm going to read this verse. And in Matthew 3.12, this is the world's and our first introduction to Jesus as he begins his public ministry. The beginning of, obviously, Matthew is the beginning of the New Testament, right? Starts with the genealogy, Christ's birth. His exile to Egypt, his return, some other stuff in there. And then we come to Jesus, just as he begins his public ministry. Jesus is walking towards the Jordan River, and John the Baptist is baptizing men. And seeing Jesus come, this is what John the Baptist says. You got that right? His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So note with me, men, that Jesus is not introduced to the world as 
he begins his public ministry. He's not introduced to the world as Jesus, our Savior, as Jesus being full of grace and mercy. He's not introduced as a friend or as a humble servant. He's not introduced as the forgiver of sins. Faith and belief is not Faith and belief in Jesus is not introduced. And while all those things are 100% accurate and completely true, God introduces us to Jesus how? As the righteous judge. That's how he's introduced to us. It says he has his winnowing fork in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He's separating the wheat, those that are saved from the chaff, those that aren't. The threshing floor is representative of his judgment. And he says he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. His judgment will be complete. What does it say? Look at the passage. What does it say he will do with or what will happen to the chaff? The chaff won't simply be discarded. It will be burned up with a quenchable fire. It says that he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Men, I suggest to you that... This is meant to inspire fear. Judgment inspires fear. I think it's meant to. In fact, I would suggest to you that judgment, fear, and authority are inextricably connected. Next slide up here. Oh, I don't have that. I don't have that on the slide. Men, let me suggest to you that you cannot have authority without fear you cannot have fear without accountability and that's judgment and you cannot have a fear you cannot have accountability without consequences those last two accountability and consequences are judgment you cannot have authority without fear fear without accountability and accountability without consequences men god will never be man's authority if we do not fear him. The fear of God is mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. It is a reoccurring theme that God is continually instructing us and bringing our attention to. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. You want wisdom? Better fear God. Ecclesiastes 8.12 says that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. The next verse says, it will not be well for the evil man who does not fear God. It's going to be well if we fear him. If we don't, it's not going to be well. Jesus, go ahead. Yep. Ecclesiastes 8, 12 and 13. Jesus himself says in uh, Luke 12, 4 through 5. He says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one after he is killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Simply put, Ben, Jesus tells us to fear. Fear is a positive motivator, isn't it? It keeps us safe. When my kids were little, whether it was an oven or a stove or a busy street or a parking lot, I would do my best to instill fear into them that they could get hurt in these situations so that it would affect and produce proper behavior on their behalf because I loved them. 
my teenage daughters. If they do not fear me, I will have no authority over them. If they do not fear that I will hold them accountable to the word of God and to the rules of the home and that there will ultimately be consequences, I will have no authority over them. You must have fear in order to have authority. Only, yeah, let me, yeah, how about this? If I fear the world and what it can do to me and what people think of me, guess what? The world will be my authority. I will bend myself into compliance with culture rather than into compliance with God. Only if I fear God will you ever be an authority in my life. Can I ask a question? You bet. Can you, can you perhaps, uh, can you reflect on when the Bible says that uh, love casts out fear? Sure. Perfect love casts out fear. And uh, men, I believe that uh, if you love perfectly, you have no reason to fear. But we don't love perfectly. And the Bible again, again, and again bangs the drumbeat of fearing God. Men, understanding that Jesus is the righteous judge is imperative to cultivating our fear of God and is absolutely necessary to our understanding and appreciation of who Jesus is and what he is about. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Men, this verse is so imperative to our walk with Jesus. This judgment, Jesus as the righteous judge, is the eternal accountability and consequences that I talked about. Authority, fear, accountability, and consequences. That judgment is the eternal accountability and consequences. Unless a man has a firm grasp on the truth that we're going to stand before Jesus, because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Unless I've got a firm grasp of that, and that I will receive eternal consequences for temporal behavior, I would suggest to you that I don't have a chance that God's going to be the complete authority in my life. For man to have God as the authority in his life, he must have a firm grasp on the biblical truth that we will all stand before Jesus, the righteous judge, and give an accounting of our life. It's imperative. There is no authority without fear, no fear without accountability, no accountability without consequences. Jesus is the righteous judge. We do well not to, not to forget that. Next, guys, let's move on to Jesus as fully man. We talked about Jesus, Jesus as fully God, but he was also fully man. 100% God, 100% man. The math here is 1 plus 1 equals 1, and 100 plus 100 equals 100. Philippians 2.7 tells us that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and be made in the likeness of men. Jesus was born as a baby, just like we were. He grew up through adolescence, just like we did. He then grew into a grown man like we did. He had a vocation, worked as a carpenter, as we know. And he experienced life and its struggles and pains just like we do. The Bible tells us that Jesus grew weary from his journey and that he was thirsty and tired. 
in John 4, 6. 4, 6. John was, John was, Jesus was fully man. We know that when Jesus had his time in the desert, that he felt the physical effects of being hungry and weak after fasting. Jesus moved by the situation with Lazarus. What did he do? He wept. He had human emotions. Matthew 26, 38 through 39 tells us that his soul was deeply grieved to the point of death as he struggled with the reality of heading to the cross. Jesus had his own will. He had his own will that he willingly subjected to that of the Father. So much so, the point of sweating blood, huh? So we know he struggled with temptation, right? Hebrews 4.15 expands on this and tells us that we do not have a high priest who cannot, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted as all things as we are yet without sin. Take note with me a couple things, men. First, that Jesus was tempted in all things. Not some things, unique things, or most things, right? It says all things. So there is not a temptation that any one of us has had or is having or will have. Everybody in this room that Jesus has not experienced himself yet without sin. And the second thing, and the just amazingly miraculous thing about this, is that because of that, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Man, we have a Savior, a Jesus who can empathize with what we are going through. And I don't, I don't think we should ever forget and always should take courage from that within our walk. He is a relatable God, a relatable Savior. There's nothing he is, we are experiencing that he has not experienced and had victory over. So that's Jesus as fully man. Should we move on to Jesus as Redeemer and Messiah? You guys ready? Jesus as Redeemer and Messiah. Ray, I've got uh, men turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, 20. And we're going to go 20 and 21. Jesus as Redeemer and Messiah. Swing away, Ray. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Man, as, as, as we know, we have been separated from God because of our sin, right? The relationship has been fractured. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. It's not talking about a temporal death only, but talking about an eternal death as well. Only through Christ and his incredible love for us and what he did for us on the cross. And through faith and trust in him can what? Can, our, can that relationship be reconciled? At the cross, this amazing transaction happened that um, 
the best deal in the history of the world, man. Right? Jesus loved us. Our God loved us so much that this is verse 21, right? It says that he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to got to become sin on our behalf, right? So God took our sin and imputed it to Jesus. He charged it to Jesus' account. It's no longer in our ledger. It's now in Jesus' ledger. Jesus became the embodiment of sin for us. Not only that, there's a second part to that deal, which the verse says, right? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. So not only was our sin imputed to Christ, then on the flip side, God took the righteousness of Christ, right? He who has been tempted in all things yet without sin, the spotless lamb, the unblemished one, right? And imputed his righteousness to me and to you and to all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Man, that is a miraculous thing, right? I can stand before G- I can stand before God and he can look at me, not as the wretched sinner, Chris, that I am, but he looks at me and sees righteousness. That's amazing. What an amazing redeemer and Messiah, huh? Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, have you been justified by faith? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Huh? Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew why he came. That Greek word ransom in that verse means redemption price. I love that. Jesus is our redemption price. First Peter 1, 18 through 20 reads, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Foretelling of Christ, our Redeemer, Jesus, our great Redeemer and Messiah. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. That's love, huh? What an incredible Redeemer Messiah. Men, let me read this. Have you ever just sat and contemplated and thought about the hugeness of this? Jesus, the incarnation of God himself, stepped down out of heaven wrapped himself in our humanity, taken on the form of a man, willingly suffered the same temptations we do, dealt willingly with the same fatigue, hunger, and thirst that we do. Jesus, the one through whom all was created, the one through whom all things that we know, see, and observe are held together, this Jesus whom has all rule and authority, The one who is the righteous judge willingly suffered a horrific death. And I think more importantly, suffered becoming the embodiment of sin so that he might redeem you and me. Us undeserving, wretched sinners. That is unbelieving, unbelievable love, huh? Jesus, our redeemer and our wonderful Messiah. Jesus is awesome, huh? 
Men, uh, in conclusion for this section, I do have one more section. But in conclusion, let me suggest to you that I think it's important for all of us to value, understand, and appreciate all these different aspects and roles of Jesus. I think it's important for us to fully comprehend and value and appreciate just the fullness, the complexity and majesty of who Jesus is, who he was, what he has done, what he's doing, and what he will do for us. It's important for us to consider and remember each one of these. Jesus is God, man, the righteous judge, ruler, redeemer. If we miss out on thinking and engrafting in any one of these characteristics, I suggest to you that we will lack having we will not have an incomplete. We will have an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. We will lack a complete understanding of just how awesome he is. Thank you, Jesus, huh? Men, in, uh, in the time that I have left, uh, as I was preparing, I wanted to see, is there anything in the Gospels that Jesus spoke about uh, consistently? Like, as we look at the four Gospels, and his public ministry, is there anything that Jesus talked about more frequently than other things? And he did a lot of, right, there's a lot in there. And my conclusion was, as I looked at the Gospels, there were three things that rose to the top of what Jesus, kind of like a steady drumbeat, three different drumbeats through the Gospels that Jesus talks about. And those three things that I, I, I concluded were, Judgment, obedience, and rewards. So let's talk about them real quick, huh? Let's talk about judgment first. We know that Jesus is the righteous judge. We talked about that. He's described as being the one with his winnowing fork, thoroughly, thoroughly clearing his threshing floor. That's judgment, right? Matthew 6, Jesus talks about judging the motives of men's hearts as it relates to the practicing of righteousness. Is it for the praise of man or for the praise of God? He's going to judge us on that. And we know that God will accept nothing except that which is done for him. He goes on in the same chapter, talks about the same issue as it relates to giving, prayer, fasting. We're doing it for men. We're doing it for God. He will judge us. He will judge us on our motives. Same passage he talks about forgiving our enemies. He's going to judge us on that. Matthew 7, he says that we will be judged based on our own standard. In the way in which we judge others, that's one of the, that's one of the principles of judges, judgment that he's going to judge us on. Matthew 10, 28, he implores us different. We talked about the Luke passage, but Matthew 10, 28, he implores us not to fear the one who can kill the body only, but to fear the one who can destroy both body and soul and then cast into hell. Well, that's the result of judgment. Matthew 11 in denouncing the cities in which the miracles were done, in two different passages, in 22 and 24, he references the day of judgment. Matthew 12, 36, he states that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it. Guess when? In the day of judgment. He talks twice more in the same chapter about the upcoming judgment, 
And, man, we could go on and on and on. It is judgment, 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 judgment. So why does Jesus continually talk about judgment throughout his public ministry? I certainly don't know for sure. But I think, man, it relates back to the, uh, the idea of there is no authority without fear, no fear without accountability, and no accountability without consequences. Understanding that that accountability and consequences is judgment wrapped up. Ecclesiastes 8, 11, and 12 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the Son of Men are given fully to do evil. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, because man, because man does not realize necessarily the consequences from the accountability of his actions, that he is then emboldened to continue on in his disobedience or his rebellious ways. If we were to meet with Jesus at the end of every day and have the reckoning then, right? Have judgment at the end of the day. Would it affect? I'm not looking for a show of hands. Would it affect how we live that day? Yeah. Man, I think Jesus talks so much about judgment because he wants to hammer this home and drive in the stake so that our senses, our understanding, and our awarenesses are heightened to the reality and the truth that we will all face judgment. He talks about judgment, judgment, judgment. Guys, he says, don't forget about judgment. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Don't forget it. I think that's why he continually hammers at home. I think he does it because the knowledge and the reality of this truth is really our friend, right? It's my friend as I live my life helping me hopefully maybe have more success that don't forget, Chris, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Don't forget, Jesus talked an awfully lot about judgment. He is the righteous judge. So that's judgment. The second thing he seems to hammer home is obedience. Men, turn with me in your Bible to John 14. I'm not going to, we're going to read a few passages. I'm not going to uh, read a litany of verses. But again and again and again, throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about obedience, obedience, obedience. So in John 14, chapter 15, we're gonna, I'm going to read four different verses. And, I w- and guys, the four different verses basically say the same thing, just with a little bit of a different twist. And let me tell you, as a parent, if I want to impress something upon my kids, you know what they hear? They hear the same thing over and over, maybe a little bit differently, but over and over and over again. Because I want to drive the stake of whatever it is I'm telling them into the ground of their life. I think that's what Jesus is doing with us, not only through the whole Gospels, but just in this one section alone. He is just helping us drive this stake deep, deep down into the ground. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Man, that is as straightforward as it gets, right? If you want to communicate love to me and show me, show me that you love me, you're going to obey me. Go down to verse 21. Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, 
He is the one who loves me. Saying the same thing, just a little differently. He goes on and says, and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. We want Jesus to disclose himself to us, reveal himself to us. What's he tell us we better do? Obey him, right? He who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. Verse 23, he says, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Sounds a lot the same, but a little bit different, doesn't it? If you love me, you're going to obey me. And then in verse 24, the last one, he states it in the negative now. He says, he who does not love me does not keep my words. You grab a hold of that, man. Like Jesus, God, Jesus, judge, Jesus, man, Jesus, rule, all of that. Jesus tells us, guys, you want to tell me you want to show me you love me? Obey me. You know how you communicate no love towards me? You know how you show me you don't love me? You don't obey me. Mark 3.35, Jesus says, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Doing the will of God is obedience, men. Jesus himself said in Luke 22.42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And this is the purest form of obedience, right? When we come up against the will of God, we don't want to do it. We don't maybe understand it, don't agree with it. And we vote against ourselves and say, just like Jesus did, it's your will, not my will be done. So not only does Jesus tell us that, that obedience is the way to communicate love to him, but he also gave us the perfect example of what that looked like. When he said to the Father, your will, not my will be done. What else does Jesus say about obedience? Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. That's obedience. Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. Acts on him. That's obedience. Men, are we building our lives on the rock? Are we building our lives with a life of obedience? God says in Isaiah 29, 13, listen to this. God says, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Men, what we say can have little value compared to what we do. What we do actually reveals what's in here, right? It reveals what's in our heart. That's why obedience is so important, right? It is evidentiary. Of what's in here. My lips can say anything. You want to see what I really believe? What's really inside of me? Look at my actions. Look at my obedience. Obedience is so important to Jesus. He tells us in John seven seventeen. He says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching. So then he's telling us that a willingness to do his will precedes understanding. If I want to have understanding, the passage tells me, Jesus tells me, I better have a willingness to obey. I better have a heart of obedience. And I'm kidding myself 
if I don't think that Jesus knows what's going on inside of here. Obedience, obedience, obedience. It's just littered throughout his teaching. So the last one, rewards. John, I'm okay on time? Okay. Rewards. Men, okay, yeah, that, I, I, oh, that's great. Men, Jesus talks extensively about rewards all throughout the Gospels. Read the Gospels looking for rewards, and it's like it just percolates up everywhere. Matthew 6, you know, one of the themes of that is the teaching on reward. You want your reward here from man, or do you want it in heaven from God? He says in Matthew 6, 19, 20, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where thieves don't break in and moth and rust don't destroy. And that's a command. Jesus is commanding us, be in the business of storing up treasures in heaven. And I'm not the smartest guy, but if Jesus tells me to store up treasures in heaven, I can conclude that I, in fact, have an ability to do what? Store up treasures in heaven. He tells us time and time again, he talks about rewards. Turn with me. You know what? Turn with me to your Bibles to Matthew 19. I think I have the right one. Matthew 19, 27. I think we've got time to turn here. Jesus is getting closer to the cross. He knows it. And uh, he has an interaction with Peter in verse 27. And uh, this is what Peter said. Peter says, speaking to Jesus, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Jesus is getting closer to the cross. And Peter says, what's in it for me, Jesus? You think like you're getting ready for like Jesus to just absolutely rebuke him, like torch him, right? And let's look at Jesus's response. Jesus says in verse 28, and he said to them, truly, there's that truly again. Truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also, and he's speaking to his 12 disciples, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus doesn't even bat an eye, but legitimizes Peter's question. What, what's in What's in the sacrifice that I've given up? Sacrifice has always given up something of present value for something of greater future value. We're called to live sacrificial lives. Jesus legitimizes Peter's question. And Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus speaks to you and me. And he says in verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake. See what he says next? will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus says, I just want to let you all know that I'm a debtor to no man. You will be rewarded and repaid. Men, back to that 2 Corinthians 5.10 verse, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That verse really, really um, connects 
all these three things that we're talking about that I think Jesus hits home throughout the Gospels. Judgment, obedience, and rewards. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment, right? So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, whether good or bad. That's, that is obedience, right? We'll be judged based upon our faithfulness to opportunity. And then we will receive a reward. All three of them are right there in that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.10. It's a perfect blend of them all. Men, and wrap it up on this rewards. Some of Jesus' own last words found in the Bible are in the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22.12. And men, if it's the last thing that we have to say to those that we love, we're going to make sure that we want to communicate what's really important, right? And these are the last words that Jesus says to us in the Bible. Second to last, basically the last. He says in Revelation chapter twenty-two, twelve, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. You think Jesus wants us to be cognizant of the fact that he's going to reward us? He doesn't want us to miss out on that motivation. So, in conclusion, men, the very last words that Jesus says in the Bible are in 22.20. He says, yes, I am coming quickly. And then the passage, is, the passage finishes with, amen, come Lord Jesus. Men, may the grace of our Lord Jesus, our wonderful Jesus, be with all of you, be with us, right? As we prepare for that marvelous day, huh? That's all I have. Are there any questions before I wrap up? Yes, sir. I went down a rabbit hole when you were talking about judgment. Yes, so sir. I wanted to share, pull up Isaiah chapter uh, Isaiah 66, um, 15. I just want to read this. Um, For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. So I was thinking about what you said about fear and judgment. Yeah. I found that, and I thought that was... Relevant to share. Thank you for sharing. One Thank more. you, men. One more. One more. Yeah, quick, quick question. Um, when you disciple another man, mm-hmm. and we want to preach that message, but we also want to preach love of Jesus, and it, it just seems like it's always back and forth. You know, that's a really hard question too. But mm-hmm. how do you balance of letting go of the shame, but also Jesus is our judge? Um. You're talking about motivation to live a righteous life. I think God gives us at least three, but three major ones. Love, right? We, we, um, we love because he first loved of this. Because of what he's done, it says in uh, Corinthians, the love of Christ controls us. So absolutely, we obey him because we love him, because we just talked about the majesty of, of who he is and what he's done for us. Absolutely legitimate. Rewards um, 
is absolutely in the scripture, just littered throughout. And fear. And that's in there as well. Again and again and again. So I don't know that. I think if uh, if I communicate to a man, I think all of us to run the race well and to finish the race well need to harness all three of these at any given moment to be able to keep our eye on the eternal and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So they're all legitimate. And I would suggest to you that a lot of men can have difficulty with rewards because it seems like it's selfishly motivated. But there's a difference between selfishness and self-interest. And all of us act in what is in our own self-interest, right? I came to Christ because I knew I had a big problem and he was the answer. And that was self-interest. I brush my teeth in the morning because I don't want my teeth to fall out. I do what's in my own self-interest. And Jesus says, it is in your self-interest to obey me. I will reward you. Do it. So um, the John 14 passage, uh, I think 23, it says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. That, it, it just kind of rubs me. Obviously, I submit to that, but um, we're often taught nowadays that God's love is unconditional, but this feels very conditional upon our obedience. And then what you just said, too, was that we love because he first loved us. Mm-hmm which is obviously not conditional on us. Um, so I was hoping you could comment on that. I'm sure. Um, uh, us coming to Christ is a, is a conditional thing, right? Jesus Christ is the ground of our salvation. The condition is faith and belief in him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, in reality, God gave me that faith, opened my eyes, and gave me an ability to exercise that. But I'm saved through faith plus zero. So the ground of my salvation is Jesus. The condition is faith or belief in him. And the evidence of a redeemed life is an obedient one. So that's why Jesus isn't saying you're saved by your works. But what he's telling us is if you want to have assurance that you're saved and that you're one of mine, you better have an obedient life. That's the only legitimate grounds that any of us have for being assured that we're saved. Yeah, can you just bring in the context, discipline, with fear and love? Can you ask that differently? Discipline in its right context is love. Yeah, discipline temporally or, well, in all aspects. Um, You know, he tells us in Hebrews that Christ, that God disciplines us because he loves us. He scourges every son in whom he receives, right? It's for discipline that you endure for what fathers are, who doesn't discipline his son. So, absolutely. Discipline at its heart has, you know, um, redemption, you know, uh, which is different than punishment, which is the exercising of justice. But, Absolutely. Thank you, guys.